Good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. It's good to uh, good to be able to worship with you today. And I just, I mean, I always appreciate our worship team, but I especially appreciate the uh, just the song selection and the passion um, that was put in this morning because I think we need it. Um, and I, th- I think we need that not just to you know not just to not for our own emotional sense, but we need it in order to remember why we're doing what we're doing. We are here, we are here to praise the Lord. And in praising the Lord, we are not only giving him the honor that is his due, we are also participating in that prayer, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And throughout, we've been studying, we're working through the book of Revelation, which is a challenge. But this week in particular is going to be a challenge. And I think we need to be reminded of the images that have come before. We need to be reminded that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb be praise and glory, wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength forever and ever. If we don't have that in our minds, this isn't going to make sense. And if we don't have in mind that salvation belongs to our God, when we start talking about things like wrath, we start to get really untethered. And I just think it's really funny that I have a lot of visitors here and a lot of faces that I don't recognize this morning because I'm like, hey, guess what we get to talk about today? Wrath. It's so exciting. You're going to love it. Wait, no, we're not. We don't like talking about this stuff. Can I be honest? There's part of me that really wishes that chapters 8 through 10 of the book of Revelation were not there. Okay? Not only because they are really ridiculously hard to understand at times, but the parts that I do understand, I don't like. I do not enjoy. When somebody's like, what's your favorite part? I'm like, oh, definitely, Revelation 8 through 10. Love that stuff. So good. Some people like Romans 12. Some people like parts of the Gospels. Me, I love this part. The part where the judgment starts. Like, no, we don't like judgment. We don't like wrath. We don't, we do not enjoy that. Okay? We're not supposed to enjoy it. We are supposed to try and understand it. We're supposed to try and see it for what it is. And that's the whole point of the entire book of Revelation is, is, is in essence Jesus, through his message and the images that he gives to John, saying, hey, things are not just the way that they seem. Even wrath, even judgment, even devastation is not all that you think it is. There is something bigger going on here, and we want you to lift your eyes up and see it. That is... That is the message of Revelation all the way through, and that, I think, still is the message here today. Um, and so we start at the end of that little section. We start with this scroll. It is the same scroll that the Lamb unseals. It's not different. Um, it's, it's the same scroll that, that the Lamb has been pulling the seals off of in, in chapter 6 and, and later in chapter 8. The adjective little is there, I think, because of the imagery, this apparent insignificant package, this little piece of paper. 
contains the message of God's kingdom reign throughout history and how he's going to finish this. Doesn't look like much, but it's powerful. And John has this experience that kind of mirrors the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, where where he's handed God's word and, and is told to devour it. Take it in, digest it, incorporate it into your life is, is really what this is about, okay? And, and I think that's significant because that's the call of anyone who is going to be not a prophet in title, but anyone who is going to proclaim the truth of Jesus with their life. You and I don't have a message that we just parrot. We don't have scriptures that we quote. We have scriptures that we embody. We have... We have a word of God that is supposed to ingrain itself in us, integrate itself into our lives, and come alive out of us. So just like John is being called to digest the scroll, we are being called to devour, you know, devour the words of God, take them in to ourselves. They are nourishment for life. They're not just good sayings. They're not just good teachings. They are not just wise ways to live. They are all of those things. But they are life. Not because of the words themselves, but because of the Holy Spirit that indwells and empowers us through them. And so John takes, John has this experience where he takes it in and it's, on the one hand, it is beautiful. I mean, like, like think about the worship, think about the words that we sang. Especially the part where we just were lifting our voices. And y'all were banging this morning. Thank you, by the way. Okay. Very encouraging to me. Where we sing at the top of our lungs. Holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Amen. It is sweet on our lips. But there are times where it's gut-wrenching in our lives. There are times where the last thing that I want to do is say, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. You are worthy when my life is broken. And even more so, more gut-wrenching than for me personally, it is gut-wrenching that I am singing, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty, in a world that is increasingly saying, what? Huh? I was looking at a Stats Canada survey. In the last 10 years in our country here, we have gone countrywide from 16% of the population saying that they have zero religious affiliation whatsoever. That has now jumped to 24% in the last 10 years. That's a big chunk of people. That's us going one, two, three, four. You have no place for any understanding of God in your life. Okay, increasingly our world is becoming more and more comfortable with the idea of God not even being a piece of it. Not only does that not only does that change a lot of our thoughts of how we need to reach people for God, because we kind of have made this assumption that like, well, okay, you may grow up with God and then you may leave for a while. But when you have kids, you'll come back. More and more people are not coming back. Like, I'm, I am 
I am super excited for the way that we are creating ownership of our teens and even our younger kids in participating in church, not, not just in doing things, but, but, but ownership of saying like, this is not your church someday when you grow up, guys and gals, especially gals. This is your church now. Why? Because I don't want you getting some idea that we don't need you now. We just need you when you turn 30 and start having kids or whatever. Okay? Because they're not coming back. Or, or they'll come back when they're in a crisis. Guess what? No. More and more over, people are saying, you know what? I have what I need to make it on my own. I can, I can find my little community of people. I can find my, I, and pretty much I can just do life without God. And so we're not even really experiencing hostility to Christianity anymore as much as we're experiencing indifference, irrelevance. Oh, people still go to church? Well, that's quaint. Isn't that cute? That, that is the reality, increasing the reality that we're living in. And guess what? That is the, that is the reality that this church, these churches in Asia are living in, are like, you guys believe in one God that you can't see, and that he had a son who died and is resurrected, and he's going to save the world with that. Whatever. Whatever. We'll just keep going on living, okay? And that is what makes this message so gut-wrenching for John and so gut-wrenching for everyone else is that everything that we're going to see in this, in these chapters is the handiwork of God trying to get the attention of the world and the world by and large saying, whatever, whatever, right? Don't know you. Wouldn't talk to you if I did. Okay? That's, that's the message. And I think also, especially when we think about this in terms of wrath, in terms of this word that we don't like, but is, is there. Okay? There is one God. There is one Savior, the Lamb. And he cares about how we live and what we do. Why is, there, why is there punishment in the Bible? Why do we even have this word, wrath? There is actually something very encouraging about this idea. God actually cares about your life. God actually cares about what you do. God actually cares about the trajectory of your existence. I know anytime we use the, 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 the heavenly father piece of, of describing God, we're going to have mixed reactions because we all had different types of fathers. Some of us have had great ones. Some of us have had terrible ones. Some of us are like, what's a father? I understand that, okay? But if we're looking at the ideal, everything that a, a parent, a father should be, one of the one of the things that drives me as a father with my kids more than anything else is that I care about who they're becoming. And everything that I do is targeted toward helping them become everything that God intends them to be or everything that I, I can imagine that God intends them to be. And he's going to continue to reveal that more and more as time goes by. And I have a limited vision of that, right? 
And so guess what? Sometimes I do things the right way and kids publicly from the front, sometimes I do things the wrong way. Sometimes I'm not the dad that I need to be. I'm trying, but I don't do it right all the time. But what about God who does do it right all the time? What about God who does know what's right all the time? He is the one who says the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. He is also the one who says the Son of Man did not come to bring peace but a sword. And he's the, son, he's the one who said, I have come to bring a fire upon the earth and how I wish it was already kindled. And that's all in the same gospel. What do you do with that? How do you hold those things in tension? How do you hold this idea that God is both about mercy and God is about justice? God is both about giving us what we don't deserve a lot of times. And yet then he will, he will also not shy away about letting us feel the full effects of trying to live life on our own terms without him. I think if we're going to understand wrath, I think if we're going to be able to hold forgiveness and wrath together, we have to understand it in terms of if God truly is that father who cares about how humanity lives, all of humanity, his children that know him and his children that don't, and he, is, he cares about where we're going and he cares about the trajectory of our lives and he genuinely desires more than anything for us to be transformed in the image of his son and to be in communion with him for eternity. Not communion of rest, but communion of participation in holiness. Right? Then he's going to use every tool in his belt to get that done. Just like I scratch my head with my wife and go, what creative consequences are we going to come up with now? in order to help form our kids because we love them and we care about who they're becoming. And so we have what is happening in chapters 8 through 10. We have seven, we've had seven seals. There's six, there's this big break in chapter 7 and then we move into chapter 8 and the seventh seal is opened up and there is silence in heaven. What is it? We don't know. Okay? There's some thoughts about it. Some people interpret it as the entry of God's presence actively into the earthly narrative, like Elijah, where, you know, he goes out in the desert and God says, I'm going to show you my presence. And there's earthquakes and there's wind and there's fire. And it's like, but God's not in it. And then all of a sudden there's this silence, just like the sound of gentle wind and breathing, or maybe even the sound of nothing. And Elijah immediately covers his face because he knows that's where God is. So maybe that's what this is. Maybe it is the hovering of the spirit before creation, like in the Genesis narrative when when it says, you know, the chaos is all around, but then here's God's spirit hovering and getting ready to speak order into the chaos. Maybe that's what's going on. Some even say it's God checking himself, even grieving, having to prepare himself for the upcoming events that he is going to allow and bring. But at any rate, it is heightening our awareness. Something significant is happening here. 
So there's this silence after the seal gets ripped off. And then we have an image in chapter 8. And you can just kind of keep following me in your Bibles, okay? Because I'm not going to read it all out. We're just going to move through it, okay? But there's this image of an angel collecting incense and fire up off the altar into a censer, like a big bowl with a chain on it. And with it, he collects the prayers of the saints, and there's this smoke and this, and, and like incense, there would be this smoke and this pleasing aroma. We focus on the fire. We don't think of the incense and the prayer so much. And then he takes it and he throws it down on the earth. And there is this rumbling of thunder and explanation, expressions of power and things like that happening on the earth. Do you wonder if your prayers matter? We talked about this in class a lot of times. Like we, we, we even brought up the C.S. Lewis quote, I don't pray to change God's mind, I pray to change mine. That's true. I'm not gonna, C.S. Lewis is a much smarter guy than me, okay? So I'm not going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to battle, do wit battles with him on this one, okay? That's true, but let me tell you something else. It's also safe. Because then it shields me from being disappointed when I pray for something and the cancer comes back. When I pray for something and the destructive behavior of the one that I love just continues to happen anyway. It saves me from, from being disappointed, doesn't it? Revela- Revelation wants you to realize something very important. Not only is your prayer pleasing to God, your prayer is affecting the world around you, even when you don't see it. I mean, think about these churches. They are, they are praying like crazy. How long, O oh Lord? Please come. Establish your reign. We know you've established it. Establish it fully. Please. And things are just getting worse. And they're feeling crushed under the pressure. And some of them are compromising under the pressure. And they're like, this doesn't feel like it's doing any good. And God's like, it is. It is. Not only are your prayers a pleasing aroma to me, your prayers are affecting the world around you. They are my power on the earth. They are bringing my kingdom, I promise. And so you have both of those things setting up. You have the, the creative power of God, the silence that makes us aware of, what, of something significant going on, and the, the significance of that we are actually participating in what's going on, which that may also make you feel a little weird when you realize that your prayers are a part of these trumpets that are getting ready to get sounded. Okay? But then you have to ask the question, what are these trumpets about? These seven trumpets that are getting ready to sound, okay? One, these trumpets in chapters 8 and 9, they are not the course of the end of the world. Okay, just like the seals weren't the message of the scroll, the trumpets aren't the message of the scroll either. What are, you, what are trumpets for? In the Old Testament, trumpets serve two purposes. Hook them horns, sorry. Two purposes, okay? One, they serve to announce the coming of royalty or the coming of an important figure, Okay? The lamb is on the throne. The lamb has opened the seals. Things are moving. And now these trumpets are announcing that the king is here. And his presence is reality. And here he comes. Okay? Much like my son is announcing that 
he may need to eat or he's tired or grumpy or needs changing or something, okay? It's loud and it's abrupt, okay? Um, even when it's cute. <laughs> but they also do something else. They are a warning. Ezekiel 33 says that if a... And this is, this is significant, right? He's like, Ezekiel's talking about the prophetic messages that God has been giving for decades to Israel. And he's like, look... If the watchman sees the horde out on the horizon coming to the city and he blows the trumpet and you stick around and the sword falls on you, your blood is on your own head because you heard the warning and you stuck around like an idiot. That's paraphrasing. Okay? He's like, but if the watchman sees the raiders coming, if he sees danger coming and he just goes, oh, that's it, and he packs up and he gets out, and he doesn't sound the trumpet, and you're hanging around, and the sword falls on you. Your blood is on the head of the watchman because he failed in his duty. And God goes, I have been a faithful watchman through my prophets for decades to you people. I've been sounding the, I've been blowing the trumpet until I'm purple. And you aren't listening. And if the sword falls... Whose fault is it now? Okay, you have to take that mindset and talk about these trumpets with that mindset. The point of these things is not destruction. The point of these things is not vindication. The point of these things is not that God is fed up and is like, fine. Okay? God doesn't discipline like you and I do. God doesn't discipline because he's mad at his kids. Okay, he's, he's better than that. Unlike me. Okay. God disciplines because he wants to bring about righteousness. Because he wants to bring about character formation. Because he wants to wake people up. And so these trumpets and the things that happen are about waking people up to the reality of God. And you have four of them. The first four are all kind of grouped together, and they're all natural disasters. It is creation that is broken, but creation that is still acting on behalf of its creator to send a message. So you have four. One is this hail mixed with fire that goes down on the earth, and it burns up stuff, okay? And then you have... A mountain that looks like it's on fire that gets thrown into the sea. And the sea turns to blood. And a lot of things die in it. And also a bunch of ships get destroyed. And then you have a third one, which is a star that is blazing on fire. And its name is bitterness. Okay? Its name is wormwood. It literally is bitter poison. It gets dropped into the drinking water. And the drinking water becomes bitter and people die from it. And then there's the fourth one where it strikes out the moon and the sun and the stars and there's darkness, okay? One, are these things all literal? No, these are images, okay? I don't know how you would actually specifically remove a third piece of the sun without the entire thing going nuclear, okay? It already is nuclear, but anyway... These are images, and here's the things I want us to see out of them. One, they look a lot like the plagues from Egypt. 
hail, burning up of the crops, livestock dying, darkness, rivers turning to blood. Any of this sounding familiar? These are, these are reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. The purpose of the plagues of Egypt were what? Repentance, right? It was to show, actually it was God squaring off against all of the deities that were the foundational pillars of the Egyptian religion and going, that one doesn't work, that one doesn't work, that one doesn't work, and just going down the line and just knocking them all down and saying, hey, when are you going to wake up, let my people go, and stop serving these things and start listening to me? The plagues were as much for the Egyptians as they were for the Israelites. And we forget that. They were announcing the coming of God and his liberation of his people, but they were also to wake up the Egyptians so that they would honor the Lord. So there's that going on, but then there's, the, then there's this. This third, 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 third thing. Why is that important? It's not a literal number. Let me tell you why that's important. Because a third is not two-thirds, and a third is not all. A third is a third. God is pulling his punches again. Even in destruction, even in wrath, God keeps pulling his punches. And all of these things that, that are tied to our security, right? Agriculture and food Water and sea life and climate and commerce even, right? The ships, right? That's all their trade stuff that's getting destroyed. The ability to have drinking water, the, even the light in which you walk by day and night, you know, like all of these things are getting closer to humanity. And the whole point is like, wake up, wake up, wake up. The things that you've put your security in will not satisfy you. But again... God's point is not destruction. God's point is attention. You are going the wrong way. Turn around. And how many of the natural destruction, I mean, just think in your mind, how many of the natural destruction, natural disasters, things of that thing, of that nature, do have we experienced recently, or do we have hanging over us? The thread of the big one out here. And instead of it making us turn toward God, I mean, we, it'll shock us for a little while. When the hurricane devastates the place, we all go like, oh my. Oh, this is terrible. But after a few days, we've moved on to the next tragedy. And we've moved on to the next tragedy. It's created a lot of anxiety in us, but it hasn't created a lot of faithfulness. Or, or about one that's very, very close to my heart. I, I grew up, and my church is maybe 10 minutes away from Columbine High School. You know, the first real mass shooting, okay? Um, all of the victims, and Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, are buried in the cemetery behind my church. I've gone down to that memorial quite a few times. And... When that happened, everybody was just shocked. And then there was all the finger pointing. 
Well, it's, it, I mean, it's parenting, it's the, the, the music, it's the, the video games, it's the police response, it's the, you know, all of that finger pointing to try and figure out why this thing happened. What if the reason that these things happen is not about gun control and it's not about it's about the fact that we like living life on our own terms, not God's. And it's becoming increasingly so. What if it's the fact that God has taken his hands off the wheel a little bit and saying, wake up. Wake up. The things that you've put your security in are not going to satisfy. They're not going to take care of you. If that's not enough, then you get into these woes. There's, there's an eagle at the end of, of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 that's flying through the air. And he says, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the, because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded, okay? Like as if the first four weren't bad enough, okay? Now you've got these three other ones that are coming, and, they, and we only have two of them because like the seven seals, we have seven trumpets, and they go six, and then there's a big pause, and then you'll hit the seventh one because God's got something to say in, in between to explain like why this is happening. And what it's all about. But chapter 9 is these two woes. These two things where we move from natural evil to supernatural evil. And we get into this image that is like the scariest, strangest thing I've ever seen. It messes with me more than... It messes with me more than the stuff that's coming. Okay? It really does. Okay? Demon locusts, I'm not a fan of this idea. I don't want to know what these things are. No, I don't know what they are. I don't want to know what they are. I don't want to be anywhere around them. Okay? We were talking about, we were talking about, evidently this hits Saskatchewan too, but I have a very, very visceral memory as a kid of in northern Texas after coming home, seeing my, my, uh, seeing my grandmother down in south Texas and we were on the way back to Denver, on the way back to Colorado. Um, we hit a plague of locusts. <laughs> in the panhandle of Texas between Amarillo and Lubbock. We're on the highway, and, I, and it looks like we're entering into a dust storm. And then as we get closer, my dad is like, oh, my, because it's grasshoppers. And it felt like forever to me, but my dad said it was about 10 miles. And all I remember is just hearing the sound of a, because he slowed way down because we didn't really know what it's like when a bajillion grasshoppers hit your windshield all at once, like, you know, it's like horror movie stuff, right? And so I just remember us, we're going like maybe like 40K for like 10 miles. And all I'm hearing is just the crunching of grasshoppers underneath our tires on the highway. It was ridiculous. Okay, now imagine that they have scorpion stingers and they're coming at you, okay? Like these are the things that nightmares are made of. Sleep well tonight. But what's the point? Locusts devour. 
It's the supernatural evil of devouring and overindulgence and pillaging those in need and bringing agony. I mean, it's, it's terrible. Again, it's limited. It's interesting to me. They don't harm the... It's, it's weird because they're locusts, but they don't actually eat anything. It's a spirit of devouring, but it's targeted toward people. They're devouring people. But even then, they're not killing them. They're just agonizing them. And it's only for five months, so, you know, maybe you get out of town. But again, it's limited. It's limited. Even in the supernatural evil, there's a sense of, like, we're holding back. It could even be worse, but we're holding back. And their leader is the fallen star. It could be Satan that we're talking about. It could be Caesar that we're talking about. Actually, the intermingling is probably on purpose. The Hebrew name for the leader of this is Abaddon. It's, it's, it's the Lord of the abyss. Okay, It's the fallen one. It's the fallen star. And so, yeah, it makes sense that that would be Satan. But Apollyon, the Greek word there, it's a play on the name Apollo. That's the divine title of Caesar. That's who he claimed to be. Apollo was also the god of the light, right? The fallen light. And I think this is interesting because the point of all this is this. Rome is both the subject of and they are the divine instrument of this judgment. We literally are our own worst enemy sometimes, says the message of Revelation. And God is allowing this. Why? To bring us to repentance. Why, despite our best efforts individually and corporately and nationally and globally, do we still kind of feel like we're just really good at messing ourselves up? Could that have supernatural implications? Could it be that God allows that brokenness to continue in a way so that we will wake up? Quite possibly. And then there's this other one. This demon cavalry that is numbering 220 million, which is just, or 200 million. It's ridiculous. Okay? And they're all on the outside. And they're coming in to conquer. And, and they just can't do it. I mean, they just, they just roll over everybody. And there's just no... There's no defense. And it would have called to mind the Parthians. The, again, this unconquerable group that's over on the eastern side of the Roman Empire that they just they can't even number them. They don't even really know what they're about, but they've never been able to hold up against them at all. They're mounted cavalry and they're archers and they've just got their number. And so you have this unconquerable fear from outside, paranoia of the other, and you have this decay and agony from within and anxiety from without. And these are the things that will topple the most stable empires. In fact, they have toppled every empire in history. Rome's no exception. We aren't either. And as long as empires get set up, especially in the face of the one true king and his kingdom, and people put their trust in that kingdom instead of the Lamb's kingdom, what are the things that are going to take them down? 
decay from within, injustice from within, anxiety, and fear from without. Here they are. And why are they allowed to get our attention? We're almost done. We get into chapter 10 and there's these seven thunders. They start talking. And John's getting ready to write them down. And really quick then like a voice from heaven goes, whoa, hold up. Back that up. Reverse the thunders. Seal it up. We're not going to do that. We're, we're not. Don't write it down. We're not going to do that. We're doing something else. And everybody's like, what is that about? Simplest answer I've got? Those thunders are more judgments that are coming. And God goes, you know what? It's not doing any good. Never mind. Never mind. This is going to be more destructive than it is helpful. Never mind. And he just seals them back up and says, we're not going to use those ever. Nope. And And again, that highlights two things for me. One, God is merciful. But two... And this is the gut-wrenching part for me, is that as much as our world is a mess internally and externally sometimes, we don't listen. We, we don't listen. And, and, and y'all as believers, we don't listen, but we live in a world that listens even less. And that's what's gut-wrenching to me. It really is. I mean, that's what happens here at the end of 9. It says, The rest of mankind that were not killed by the plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They didn't stop worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, idols that can't see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their magic arts or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Even in tragedy, we don't see a need to. Even even in difficulty, we don't see a need to. Even when God is going, wake up, we don't. We fail to see the fact that, as C.S. Lewis said, another C.S. Lewis quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pain. But we don't listen. Instead, we see hardships of life as proof that either God doesn't exist, or if he does, he's laying down on the job. And so what are we supposed to do with these chapters? here's Here's the so what part as we finish up. What are we supposed to do with these very, very uncomfortable chapters? One, Take it in, okay? The whole point of this is that as, as John is seeing all this, the angel says here, don't just witness it, witness to it. Devour it, take it in, take this reality into your life, okay? And this is one of the realities we need to take into our lives. Don't make light of God's judgment. We want to. We want to use every strategy we can to avoid dealing with the consequences of sin in our lives and in other lives. But God, 
God doesn't take us lightly. God does not take us lightly. He loves us with an everlasting love. And so he's not going to take our lives lightly either. He loves us way too much to let us go on our own way without warning us. He will continue to take us seriously. And however well-versed we become at tuning out the sounds of things that we don't want to hear, God is going to continue to find new ways to penetrate our defenses because he loves us that much. And it's time for us, instead of as believers and in the world that we live in, to preach a message that says, hey, stop ignoring him. Start listening. And I think that's the other piece is, it is a bittersweet prophecy that we carry. Because not only does Revelation bring us to the edge of decision, who we are, are we saints of God who run to God because of the warning signs and are saved, or are we the inhabitants of the earth, as God calls them, who refuse to hear and persist in our own little kingdoms. It's not just calling us to that, but it's also calling us to carry and proclaim that message. And that is both a sweet experience as we sing of the one who has saved us and set us free, and it's a bitter experience. It's a gut-wrenching experience. Because it's going to make us outcasts, y'all. It is. It's going to make us odd. It's going to make us strange. It's going to make us unpopular. It's going to make us offensive sometimes. Not that we're going out looking to offend anyone. But if we live in a world that by and large thinks that this is ridiculous, then we're going to be ridiculous too. And if we live in a world that by and large wants to ignore this and wants to get antagonistic to it, they're going to do that to us too. Are we going to compromise or are we going to actually live out the message? Even the message of when these things happen, it is because God is trying to get our attention. That's not unpopular. That's not a popular statement, but it is the truth. Are we willing to risk like that? It's a big question. It's a hard question. It's one that we're going to have to wrestle with. But I believe that it is God who is holy who calls us to live. Yes? And he calls us to live in this way. He calls us to understand and he calls us to incorporate that bitter sweetness of knowing that God is doing everything he can in order to bring about the salvation of the lost. Amen? Let's stand and let's worship together.